This is your host Shane with Radical Rocks. Today we have a very exciting episode for you, jam-packed, filled with all kinds of rock, gym, and mineral stories and information, educational. We want to dedicate today's show to Michael Cathro. Um, He sent us a real nice uh, review of our podcast, and uh, we do appreciate that. We appreciate being able to review that and uh, get your criticism and critiquing on what we can do better. Um, So today we're going to try to do the show a little longer than usual. We can't always do that. Time is limited, and um, we are always searching for uh, sponsors for our show, so that's available if anybody wants to sponsor the show. Today's episode, we are going to go into Rich Hill Gold, Arizona, toward the end. Um, We're going to go and talk about this area where nuggets, gold nuggets the size of potatoes were found, and occasionally... Some of these things are still found uh, in modern days with metal detectors. Now we're also going to go into uh, fossil hunting. There's a lot of great fossil stories that uh, we can talk about. We've got um, a boy making a discovery in his backyard. We've got uh, a story about T-Rex and man. Were they alive at the same time? Scientists uh, are finding some evidence that may indicate something like that. We're going to talk about 100-carat diamonds and fancy-colored diamonds. We're going to talk about uh, Queenland sapphires that are appearing like crazy right now. We're going to talk about crystals at Mont Lake in uh, South Carolina, no, British Columbia. We're going to talk about space mining kits. We'll talk a little bit about a meteor some things happening on Mars right now, Copper River, uh, fossil hunting responsibly, how we can do that. We're going to talk about uh, metals of antiquity and also rainbow minerals, the world of rainbow minerals. So we've got a ton of topics. I've been having power outages off and on today, so uh, if it blinks out, I will just continue the podcast and go with whatever material I can, but if I lose my um my websites then i'm I'm just doomed right <laughs> so we're just going to go ahead and move on through with it. I want to thank everybody for just supporting the channel, supporting the show. Stop by our website radicalrocks.com. You scroll down to the bottom, you can hook up with all our links, our community um links, our websites, our podcast, videos on YouTube, blogs, all that good stuff. We even have a little store. So check that out and be a part of the Radical Rocks community, educating yourself and keeping rock hounding alive for future generations. Okay, so first let's get right into it. There is a a spring rock and mineral show that features Jim Tree's and cabochons. This was uh, brought to our attention by Samantha Lotus, a staff writer for the Daily Review on March the 28th. She says, in Athens broth, um, Marv and Hazel Remily of Northern Minerals brought 
on the third annual Spring and Rock Mineral Show at the Shia Creations and Company at 232 South Main Street in Athens on Saturday afternoon. So if you want to check that out, you can. Um, and let's see, was there any more information? No more information on that, but you can look that up. Um, also, I've got a lot of neat diamond news. Uh, if you go to Forbes.com, there's an article entitled Three Fancy Colored Diamonds Lead to Christie's New York Jewelry Auction. And on the page is these spectacular diamonds. Dark blue diamond like you've never seen before. Intense yellow diamond. Canary yellow like you've never seen before. Ruby red um almost a watermelon uh, kind of hue to it, uh, red diamond, spectacular. These babies are called the Perfect Palette. The three gems range in price from $150 million to $300 million a piece. This article was written by Anthony DeMarco um, on the 27th. Now, you can look at this article here and see several of these spectacular giant diamonds selling for millions of dollars but there's a cheap one here here's one that's more affordable for you if you're the million dollar range scares you it's a 6.65 fancy carrot intense orangish pink diamond for only seven hundred thousand dollars they're expecting the bid to go maybe up to a million but maybe something more in your price range not my price range anyway um, several of these diamonds are pictured here huge 20 carat diamonds um, beautiful colored diamonds, uh, ruby, uh, rubies for sale during this uh, auction as well. Huge rubies for $1.2 million. There's a beautiful um, sapphire, pink sapphire, all the way around these um, blue sapphires. And these are super intense, dark blue sapphires by vibrant pink sapphires with regular white diamonds um, put across it. They're um, just earrings, and they are going to sell, they estimate, between $80,000 and $120,000, but these things are just amazing. Um, watches encrusted in diamonds, other things are all going to be sold there. Now, one thing uh, we like is alternatives to minerals from the earth. Sometimes we talk about pearls and we talk about fossils, but also there's amber jewelry. Uh, amber jewelry is quite the rage. I'm not going to talk about it much today, but there's an article on virtual-strategy.com on the Strategy Magazine called Baltic Essentials Introduces All-Natural Amber Jewelry to Promote Health, Beauty, and Nature. And this was written on the 29th, but um, a lot of people aren't aware that um, babies have chewed on amber as a teething aid, and this can be very, very helpful for them, um, and has proven to be used for many, many uh, years. And also, it is a warm color, which is pleasing to the eye. So if this is something you want to check out, uh, amber is a wonderful alternative. And when you find amber that has like an insect in it, 
um, that can be an interesting twist um, to the amber. And sometimes even larger creatures have been found in amber, such as lizards, uh, frogs, and other creatures uh, have been found in amber. Now, this little boy, just like all little boys and uh, a lot of little girls too. In fact, every little girl I've ever known, my girls, when they were little, they loved digging in the dirt in the backyard and they bring in the occasional rock or maybe they've dug up an old toy from the people who lived there before. But on Yahoo News, Catherine Garcia on March 29th wrote an article called Boy Digging for Worms in His Backyard Discovers an Ancient Fossil. Um, there's a picture of the young man here. He looks quite amazed with his find. His name is Sid Signa Jehmet, and he was hoping to dig up some worms, but instead he got a pleasant surprise. He found a fossil. Uh, of course, they guess this thing is millions of years old. He lives in Walsa, England, and he told the PA media that he expected to dig up insects, maybe some pottery and rocks and brick and things like that. But he found a, sh a rock shaped like a horn. So his dad took a picture of it, posted it on Facebook to a group of fossil enthusiasts, and they identified it very quickly as horn coral. Um, this is a really neat find, and uh, the piece is quite unique. So congratulations to um, this six-year-old boy who, in England who found this fossil how exciting. I guess everybody in the neighborhood is probably digging up their yards now, trying to find more fossils. Now, a little bit more on the diamonds. How would you like to have a 100 carat plus diamond? Well, this is what has been recovered at the Lucipas Lula Mine. It's uh, March the 29th, miningreview.com. They've got an article here from the Loop. Maybe it's Lucapa. Lucapa Diamond Company partners with the Endemia and Rosa Petales to announce three of the 100-carat diamonds that they discovered at their alluvial diamond mine in Angolia, Angola. So it's 131-carat. Um, it's a D color. Um, there's also 118-carat. It's a brown diamond and 133 which is a little bit lower quality, a gray diamond. They have pictures of these things. They look like glass, um, but they do have a kind of a shine to them that's a little bit different. Now, we know in Africa, um, this is where a huge portion of the diamonds have been found in the world, although other places are popping up in Australia, uh, Canada, and elsewhere where, uh, where diamonds are being found um, in record number now and expected to find even more. So these are some really amazing diamonds in this area that uh, was not really um, being uh, developed quite as much as some of the other areas. But uh, look at these diamonds. Aren't they something incredible? Now, how about sapphires? You know what? In Queensland town, after the severe flood brings sapphires to the surface. abc.net.au um, on the news channel there, ABC um, News by Jasmine Hines. This was posted two days ago. She's got the article there on this this good result from something bad that happened. The flood waters subsided in a little town called 
sapphire. Now, what do you call rockhounders in Australia? They're not rockhounders, they're flossickers. Flossicking is the way that you go and collect rocks when you are an Australian. So that's our friends out there in Australia. That's how they do it, and that's what they call it. So there's a flossicker, hopefully, in every one of us, right? But these sapphire gem fields are the largest sapphire-rich areas in the world, cover some 900 square kilometers, and there was a flood in mid-March. It inundated uh, a lot of these properties, removed a lot of soil, and helped unearth uh, quite a few precious gems that are starting to turn up. Um, one lady here who is... Uh, her name is Meredith Etheridge. She visited the gym uh, areas, the gym fields, to poke around. And before you knew it, she found some. She found some. Um, she is a fossicker, and she grew up with rocks all around and had rocks in her pocket as a kid. And now she's doing it as an adult. Um, a lot of other people have gone there, and they are finding a few of these beautiful sapphires here and um, you can actually go to this place. It says there's many people who live in the gym fields uh, that came as tourists and then just moved there. Um, but you can go there. There's different areas where you can book for Easter. Um, and they go there and take you there and show you where to find these gyms. Um, every day they get more and more phone calls of people that want to go and find the gyms. Um, one tourist here regularly travels um, from his hometown here and looks in the creek beds and he's found some uh, keepers but he's still looking for that big giant hall um, to find. Um, there are some big stones ripe for the picking here. Um, the harder you dig the more you can find. Um, the more likely you are to find one that's going to be um, really nice. Other information here is um, Available if you want to check that out. There was a heavy rain that they had where someone found a yellow sapphire that was 424 carats. They called it the Amazing Grace, and it was one of the rare yellow ones that they find there. And there is a little shop there called the Miner's Heritage Jewelry Shop in Rubyvale, and uh, they can give you a lot of information on where to go and where to go find these sapphires here in Australia that you can go mine if you want to go do that. Okay? Really cool. Definitely Australia opal mines and things like that are on my bucket list. I would love to go gold mining there and sapphire digging and all of that. Now, next on infonews.ca, um, infotel dot c a is the website info i n f o t e l dot c o the article's entitled rock collectors captivated by crystal formations near mont lake by carly berry um there's a beautiful picture of a mountain range here with the lake mont lake there sitting off in the distance and um this is actually uh below the dam where they were collecting these crystals and that is in South Carolina, according to my research. The article doesn't say. It just says North America, or at least I didn't see it. But you take uh, you take Highway 97, and you might see people with hammers and tools breaking rocks. And collectors have been searching for uh, minerals and colorful rocks in the area. 
And the Mineral Club vice president uh, that is in that area, his name is uh, Tony Hersekamp. He says um, everybody there is a wannabe rock hound. Members of the club with newbies are all searching for agates, crystals, thunder eggs, and minerals associated with gems that can be found next to the highway. Uh, the area on Mont Lake near Falkland is a popular location. So um, if you want to really do a good job, then I would look up the um, rock rockhounds in that area in Mont Lake and check out the clubs in that area. Um, it's called the Vernon Lapidary and Mineral Club. So you want to look up Vernon Lapidary and Mineral Club and... Um, they, I'm sure they have field trips. Join that club and look at some of these stones. They have pictures of them that they've used some wire wrapping to wrap their cabbage on. Some are freehand, some are heart-shaped, ovals, oblongs, teardrops. Um, beautiful array of these agates. Very colorful. Some look like jaspers, too. Very ornamental stone. Um, the cabochon technique is an easy way to form these into beautiful works of art and jewelry from this agate and chalcedony with the bands and designs that is found in this area. Now, the area can be dangerous, so you would really want to get with the group here and find out where the safe areas are. Um, you have to be careful not to let rocks roll across the highway and stuff like that. We have to be conscious of... Um, the people by the highway that would be driving. But uh, one of the rarest finds they found was an amethyst geode um, that had uh, datalite in it. And it was just luck of the draw. He was chiseling away and uh, working his rear end off. And there it was, just beautiful. Another person has came in to visit as far away from Ontario and Germany said the club presidents. So um, with COVID and stuff, uh, everything's kind of slowed down and stuff, but this is a good outdoor sport. You know, it's a lot safer to be around people outdoors, I think, you know, where you have more airflow and you can have space between you if you're worried about uh, COVID and stuff like that. This is definitely an activity that uh, you can engage in. Now, what in the world is a space mining kit? Well, if you go to... B-I-S-O-U-V dot com at the Bizio Network, you're going to see an article called Space Mining Kits Blast Off for Test in Orbit um, by Ohidru Ism Roman. On March the 27th, he said, Astronauts are ready to test the world's first space mining devices in an adventure that could open up a new exploring in the universe. These prototype kits are sent to the International Space Study to study how microscopic organisms could be used to recover minerals from metals from space rocks. Um, this is going to possibly aid in establishing manned settlements in distant worlds by developing minerals essential for survival in space. Um, Tests are going to reveal how gravity affects bacteria's natural ability to extract useful metals like iron, calcium, magnesium from rocks. Their findings could um, improve the process known as biomining, uh, which has numerous applications on Earth, including recovery of metals from ores. Uh, very exciting 
situation that's going here. 18 of these devices are going to be transported to the International Space Station aboard SpaceX rocket launched on July the 25th from Cape Canaveral in Florida. And um, these biomining reactors are going to be loading into incubators and looking and studying at these bacteria uh, affected rocks and studies that will know are known as biofilms, um, and they to study how microbes grow and form on uh, different planets and in space, and also will help with learning how things grow in Earth. Um, the article goes on to more detail. If you want to find that out, check it out. Pretty cool. We love learning about Mars. Now. The oldest meteorite ever found is, according to scientists, 4.6 billion year old rock found in the Sierra. Um, they feel this is going to uh, give them some secrets of the solar uh, system. And that can be found at brinkwire.com. It was written by Jonathan Edwards on March the 27th. An ancient meteorite was discovered in the Sierra Desert last year that has now been identified from a chunk of protoplanet that formed before Earth came into existence. The space rock is named EC002. Um, they feel that it's mostly volcanic rock. They believe that it came uh, from the crust of a very early planet. A French team and Japanese scientists have determined the rock was once liquid lava, but cooled and solidified to form a 70-pound piece that eventually made its way to our planet. Now, they find, uh, they're finding similar properties here, which are uh, from Earth, um, but yet they feel it is a space rock because of probably the way that uh, the surface of it is been melted from intense heat, probably flying through the atmosphere. And um, they found several fla uh, fragments of it, around the area indicating the result of a collision so this meteorite is uh, named after an algeria eric check uh, dune c which consists of several meteorites that collectively weigh over 70 pounds and are being analyzed and studied so who knows what they'll find um, the researchers are determining the age by magnesium aluminum isotopes um, that they feel formed billions of years ago Maybe, could be, who knows. Wild guess, sounds like to me. Um, they use, uh, uh, they noted that they found yellow and green bits at this, and so they are studying those to see what's in there. And uh, they've also noted that the meteorite is about 58% silicon dioxide, making it much rarer than those found on Earth. So that also differentiates it from Earth minerals, they feel. Um, but uh, all kinds of other interesting things about this asteroid. If you want to find out how the study is going, you can check that out at brinkwire.com. Now, here's an interesting uh, fossil find. We have somebody here who discovered a, um, was it a bear claw or a bear tooth? It says a... SC Diver finds rare prehistoric bear tooth fossil in Copper River. So it's South Carolina. Um, this is found at the postcourier.com, postcourier magazine. And it was written by Andrew Miller on the 26th. And they've got a beautiful picture of this claw here. Um, 
it's huge. It's is uh, it's in looks like a man's hand here. He's holding it. Eric uh, Eric Prolux of Fort Mill is holding it here, and it's as long as his uh, pointer finger, his middle finger. So uh, I would put that at about maybe uh, two and a half, three inches. It says it's three inches here from a giant short-faced bear. Um, it was found while diving in the Copper River. And uh, he didn't think it was a real big deal, but um, yeah, it is. It's a big a big deal. Um, he also has found other fossils while diving in lower Berkeley County. Last year, he found an eight-foot woolly mammoth tusk and the jaw of a rare prehistoric cat and dozens of shark teeth. So this guy really has a knack for finding fossils while diving. Pretty pretty interesting. Um, I I would like to read a book if he ever wrote a book about it. He said he wasn't all that exciting. He thought it was a whale or a dolphin tooth. Um, but then when he found out what it really was, um, he was quite excited. He took the discovery um, to the Paleontologist Society social page, and uh, it was identified there. Um, an expert, uh, Charlton uh, College of Charlton paleontologist Robert Bossenecker, expert on prehistoric wells and dolphin, believed it was from a prehistoric land animal. And sure enough, it was identified uh, to be... Uh, a bear tooth. Uh, also, it was uh, hypothesized that it might be an American lion tooth, but bear teeth and cat teeth, I guess, can be similar. Um, but it has been identified by Richard Holbert, a Florida Museum vertebrate paleontology, who determined the tooth came from a short-faced bear. Um, these were uh, have been found through uh, Europe and mostly Canada and um, North America. This animal is estimated to stand six feet tall. Largest bears could be up to 12 feet tall and have been extinct for quite some time. So uh, pretty cool to find that. Um, also, the guys found pottery, all kinds of neat stuff in uh, South Carolina. Um, pretty cool. Sounds like he's going to donate the fossil to the South Carolina State Museum for the museum's natural history collection. So that's pretty cool. Um, I've donated a fossil to um, a museum in San Diego. They think it was a whale fossil, a whale bone. Um, how to hunt fossils responsibly. Well, five tips from a professional paleontologist can be found at uh, cosmomagazine.com. The article's dated on the 27th of March. And... Uh, the uh, article is credited to Kayla Thorne, and uh, she is a curator in the Earth Science Museum, the University of Western Australia. Now, they go through why we need to be responsible. Um, they give credit to the amateur paleontologists or fossil collectors that have been out there, like Mary Anning from the UK, uh, who brought us the uh, plesiosaurus and ichosaurus and marine reptiles um, from the early 19th century in the 1800s and uh, other wonderful people who have discovered these fossils throughout time. But they bring out that, you know, uh, if you're not responsible, you could damage it. Um, also, sometimes when private people dig these up, it drives up the prices. We've heard about the T-Rex heads going for a million dollars found out in Montana. And, um, you know, museums would certainly like to get those um, for much cheaper. And 
not have all those great specimens go into the general public. But that's the way it happens. So number one, to be a responsible citizen as a paleontologist, um, make sure you have permission. Okay, so there's there's tribal lands, there's private lands. Um, if there is, if you are in a natural a national park or uh, state or government property, you have to find out what the rules are there because um, sometimes you just can't keep. Uh, in California, most of the um, larger animals, you can't keep them. You have to get uh, permission. You have to report them. You, you can't. I don't even think you can take them. You can only take like sea creatures and things like that in most cases. Um, also, you want to stay safe. Don't go by yourself um, unless it's in your backyard like the six-year-old boy. Don't go by yourself. It's very easy to... Um, break an ankle or fall or there's you know a lot of times fossils are in areas where there's insects reptiles and uh, large animals that could be threatening you and injure you and poison you Um, even bee stings and wasp stings you know you could have even though you've been stung before you could have a bad reaction um, and be ill prepared for that make sure you have the right equipment do some studying find out what the equipment is um, you can find out on uh, YouTube how to dig up a fossil properly very quickly. Watching a few videos, just uh, um, you know, uh, type in the the search bar there uh, how to dig up a fossil, and it'll show you. And once you get the hang of it, um, you'll get some brushes and picks and you know little shovels and trowels and um, learn how to go through and do that depending on the soil and the area where you're collecting also don't don't get greedy um don't you know bring in a backhoe and dig up a whole area of rocks and and uh, especially with the sea fossils there was an area we used to collect out in amboy and uh we would just uh you know grab a backpack full of rocks and and take them back and man we went out there and somebody had taken a big uh cat um, tractor and pulled out, uh, must've been 20 diesel trucks, uh, in dump trucks full of rocks and cleaned out the whole area. Um, since then some friends have, have climbed up higher in the area where they can't get those type of things. And there's still fossils there that have been found, but also be a citizen scientist, um, label and identify what you have found. Um, when you find a fossil, you know, Make a note of what it is. Um, there's all kinds of great instruction. I think we have a blog on it. You take a white paint and uh, you make a little white dot on it and then um, you put a number and then you catalog it and you keep a little card file. You can just make it up with paper that you cut to size, um, like business card size. Or you can get fancy and you can just use a business card. I do that. And then you can use a format on uh, you know, any... Um, format to make business cards but you just write out the rock where you found it um, what time you found it and uh, identify it the best you can if you can't identify it there's a lot of sources Um, of course online pictures and things like that can help Um, there's also museums and things like that do be warned uh, a lot of times museums will want you to leave it with them and um and they want to keep it, especially if it is a significant find. So be prepared for that. But uh, if it's something fairly common, they usually don't have a problem identifying it and um, giving it right back to you without um, pressuring you into giving it to them. Okay. Um, Medals of antiquity. 
We've talked about uh, gemstones being used in antiquity. Um, Rob Tyson of the Mining International LTD on Mining.com wrote an article on March the 26th about tin. Um, Tin is definitely a metal of antiquity, and humans have made great use of it. We know gold, silver, copper, lead, iron, uh, mercury, and these other uh, metals were used in ancient days, but uh, tin really did do some amazing things. The Bronze Age, we know, um, started in the Middle East, according to scientists in the 4th and 3rd millennium BCE, although <laughs> I've seen indications that uh, uh, it did definitely happen in the Middle East much earlier than that. But uh, you know, they don't want to rewrite the history books, right? Just because uh, the Bible says that they were doing bronze back in the time of David and Goliath, which uh, was pretty funny when our pastor brought that up. Um, <laughs> they had bronze before the bronze era, right? But anyway, this tin was so uh, important. Um, along with that, purification of copper, it wasn't uh, really practiced until the 16th and 17th century. And uh, Bronze objects um, had uh, arsenic and tin in them, about 2% or less. So these alloys, uh, alloys were probably the result of chance and not done intentionally. But these minute amounts of, uh, of uh, arsenic and iron made changes in the bronze object um, and gave properties to the copper copper that made it a little bit stronger and um it says archaeological uh, archaeologists have discovered that arsenal bronze predates tin bronze because they found traces of arsenic uh, rather than tin in the very earliest bronze ages tools came from the transitional era between uh the Neolithic stone age and the bronze proper era and they go on about these ages and when they started and so on and so forth. But uh, as they put more of the tin in here, it changed uh, the properties of the bronze and um, made these bronze axe heads a little bit stronger. Uh, one axe head was found to be 91.1% copper, but had these impurities of silver um, uh, and other things to that led to uh, it being just a little bit different and helped them determine where the deposits of copper came from. This one came from Italy. Uh, around 3000 BCE, there was a lot of uh, arsenic bronze and it developed to tin bronze. And then uh, 3000 BCE is associated with the beginning of tin use which was discovered um, as an allied in bronze. So at this point, they're putting it in there on purpose. They found a few pieces of tin jewelry, beads, and trinkets. Um, they're very rare um, and uh, not really talked about that much. But this was a definite change. Um, was it accidental or was it on purpose? Well, maybe at first it was accidental, but it seems like... Um, along the route it started to be um, on purpose so um, these tin induced bronze items became more and more uh, prevalent 
during the tin uh, and bronze age after uh, 3000 BCE. So they said that the mystery's been un, un, been solved uh, in southern Turkey in some ancient uh, workings that were there. They found clues that tin was used in bronze and they found a bunch of artifacts um, from around 2870 BCE to 1870 BCE. They found uh, dovetailed nicely with tin bronze in this region and in these artifacts. So tin in Europe was very rare, um, probably because of um, just what they had in that area, or it could have weathered away. So also they found indications of uh, Bronze Age uh, material in shipwrecks near Turkey and around the south coast of England that show bronze was in these items as well. Now this is a very, very lengthy article, um, so I'm not going to give you every bit of information on it, but you may want to read this if this is something you were interested. There was also an ancient tin trade. The um, Felici the Phoenicians were also famous, not just for the glass, but for purple dye. They used tin vessels for storing the dye and these liquids to keep them from evaporating. Um, so it's interesting that they could work this tin relatively easily into shapes to make these containers. Now, Romans welded together lead uh, to make water piping and um, an alloy from tin and lead, and tin remains an important component in modern solders thanks to strength and wetting ability. Over 50% of today's tin is used to make various types of solder that come in handy for everything from plumbing through electronic cars to machinery. So if you don't know what solder is, um, Basically, when you look at an electronic component and you see all you see the green boards or the red boards or the brown boards with all the little diodes and uh, resistors and the little metal and the little blobs of metal that 's the soft solder that they heat up that uh, connects the electronics panels to um, the circuitry or uh, when plumbing and using copper pipes, um, they can be connected with a a silver solder that is heated up um, that has a lot of heat, uh, tin in it and bonds the two pieces of pipe together so that they can be watertight. Now, um, tin metals are prone to corrosion, so um, there is things that they add to them, such as bronze and other things that help it to wear better. So a lot of information on tin here. Um, how it was used and as an alloy to bronze to make bronze stronger and better. Um, really cool. Now in the mymotherload.com, we have an article on a rock, gym, and jewelry fair, which is at the uh, Calaveras Gym and Mineral Society Rock Gym and Jewelry Fair in uh, Almer... Oh, let's see. Amador, Amador, Caverns, Mariposa, Tourmaline Counties, and more in California, um, Saturday the 27th. So that's already passed. So uh, we missed that one. Sorry, folks. All right. Next. Did ancient man walk alongside T-Rex? 
new evidence backs up the theory. This is on National Geographic's. Um, so the article came to me in email as a man walking, but it actually is the article itself is did ancient primates walk alongside t-rex so um they don't feel that they found direct evidence that man has been there but primates such as monkeys and apes have been identified as being there now i can't read this article because you have to subscribe to national geographics to um, look into it but if there's something you're if that's something you're interested in you may want to subscribe to that they do want you to pay at some point they will give you a free um, subscription for a while at least that's how it was when i looked at it but uh there it is now what about bringing your interior spaces to life with decorative gemstones and home accessories? Um, there's a lot of items. If you go to these big, giant rock, gym, and mineral shows, or some of these big um, gym shops, they may have available like things made out of lapidary material, like coasters and jewelry boxes, and um, just decorative items that you can hang on the wall or put on a shelf. And at OptionsHedge.com, Options. Uh, it actually goes O-P-T-I-O-N-S-T-H-E-E-D-G-E.com. There's an article there by uh, Diana Koo on March the 26th that talks about using these decorative uh, gemstones, minerals, and lapidary to um, bring warmth and uh, beauty into your home through these uh, what they call three rituals and they have a site called 3rituals.com with tableware, decorative items, all made from gemstones, metals, things that might be overlooked by the common um, decorative, home decorative, and tableware um, that are available for purchase. And uh, for those of us that are rockhounds and mineral lovers, that sounds pretty good. Now, I did miss a story on Mars uh, the Perseverance rover sends sounds of plunging rocks on Mars. This came out on the 25th. Uh, can be found at bollyinside.com, B-O-L-L-Y, inside.com. And they are recording sounds of rocks. Now, it's way it's done is researchers are using the variation of the sounds and the vibrations to find out the physical structures of rocks that include how hard they are, um, how dense they are. Um, it has a 12-pound sensor on the head of the rover's mask, the rover that's there on Mars, and a neck that can analyze the intriguing geology of Mars in five different ways. The instrument includes a camera, a laser, a spectrometer that can identify the chemical and mineral composition of rocks and soil. Now, scientists use this super cam so they can collect uh, samples and study them right there on Mars. They're looking for microbial life on Mars. That's their big thing. They want to find uh, Martians and aliens, but they do feel they're going to find some microbials there. Um, 
and uh, any other signs of life and also analyze these rocks and minerals to find out if they could be useful to us for fuel, for survival, should we decide to put a man or woman, man and woman, on Mars or to just use it as a base, maybe for future travel or uh, other ideas that they have for Mars that are just unlimited. So the microphone captures the sounds. They shoot these lasers through it. Um, and uh, that gives them what the sound waves sound like through it. And you can listen to this, and they can shoot these different rocks and hear these sounds and find out maybe if they're worth looking at and going nearer to. And the audio sounds um, are pretty cool, um, according to what I'm reading here, in discovering more about the rocks and minerals that are on Mars. So that's what's going on on Mars. Now, if you go to Rock and Jim, it's rock, uh, the letter N, jim.com, you can get a uh, free email subscription. Uh, they will send you out newsletters and information. They do that for me. I recommend subscribing to the magazine. Um, they're not my sponsor. None, I have, we have no sponsors right now. But uh, this, any rock hound should be subscribed to Rock and Jim magazine. All right? Iridescent Understanding the Rainbow in the Mineral World came out on the 18th. Steve Voynick was the author of this. It's part of a two-part series. Um, I tried to go to the part one, and it just didn't want to open up. But the two-part story is talking about the iridescent, eye-catching minerals. The first one that comes to mind is opal, which is the National Gemstone of Australia. It is prized for the kaleidoscope of fiery iridescent packed layers of nanoscale silica spheres that are there make a beautiful, beautiful patchwork of colors known as opalescent. Other gemstones that occasionally exhibit this iridescent are sunstones, moonstones, which both are translucent varieties of feldspar materials. Now, in sunstone, a bright golden glitter uh, makes the stone's brownish-red body uh, glitter and iridescent, known as adventure scenes. And it's caused by light reflecting um, from the little microparticles of hematite and geothite. And these particles act as diffraction gratings um, that make different uh, spectrums of light shine out and the stones exhibit a greenish iridescent. Now moonstone is named for its soft moon-like silvery to bluish white sheen. I've seen also green. Um, it's not really so much iridescent. It's called a hope I say this right adula recense and due to microscopic inclusions uh, there's twinning planes that diffuse light and these lights uh, and these planes can sometimes cause a thin, micro-thin diffraction grating interference that creates a delicate blue iridescent. Less common is the rainbow moonstone with its array of cayenne green, gold, and other beautiful colors. Iridescent also can occur in quartz types of rocks. Rocks crystals from India's Deccan Taps traps have intense iridescent, but only on specific crystal faces. Um, an electron microscopy 
reveals the faces and surfaces consisting of periodic ridges and grooves of repetitive twinning. This causes the refraction, or they call it diffraction gratings, that create iridescent rainbow quartz. Fine specimens can sell for thousands of dollars. Now, other types of uh, geothite and hematite can produce surface-thin iridescent in rock crystals, causing this iridescence that we've been talking about in bitrodal forms, such as fire agate. The play of green, reds, goldish browns, yellows can be caused by that as well. Iris agate exhibits a very unusual iridescent reflected by light, and finely banded, semi-transparent iris agate has, I thought this stuff was fake, but it ends up it's real. It has a drab gray body color, but when backlit, thin slices cut perpendicular to the banding produce circular rainbow structural colors called iris due to the diffracting grading effects of these little layers. Now, in bitroidal uh, geothite specimens, the microscopic surfaces will troglite mix of geothite and hematite causes a uh, also light to reflect and creates an iridescent fracture on the surfaces of flint and other types of microcrystalline quartz. Now, another rainbow obsidian does display this iridescent. Obsidian, which is a volcanic glass, it has uh, can have inclusions and mineral properties and gas bubbles that act as diffraction gratings to produce this internal iridescent. Um, some surfaces have this twinning plane that we talked about. Um, also can happen in calcite minerals, calcium fluoride, and garnet groups, notably um, um, andorite. Okay? Um, also, satin spar fibers of gypsum can exhibit um, the cat's eye and iridescent uh, that can be quite beautiful and displays a shifting of light. The white band that shifts viewing at different angles, the fibers between these uh, diffraction gratings cast soft uh, iridescent cayenne colors in some of these. Abalone shells and seashells are also iridescent. Um, these are due to layers of hexagonal platelets uh, ragonite and um, calcium carbonite, among other things, that also have these diffraction gratings that uh, give the soft pink and green iridescent that we see on these shell surfaces. Also, ammonites that we see, fossilized shells and ammonites that we see that have intense magenta and green colors are also due to this diffraction grating effect uh, within the stone. Pearls uh, also uh, can give uh, some light, uniform, non-iridescent white or cream body colors that seem to kind of glow. Diffraction grating interference pearls can occur and appear multicolored um, with soft pink and green iridescent. So these uh, things are really cool. There's also man-made materials that you can get. Um, we did a show in a rock show where he had some beautiful uh, bismuth crystals that are man-made. 
It is a natural occurring mineral, but it's man-made to form in these bigger uh, crystals that you can hold in your hand that are quite spectacular, iridescent rainbow colors that you can check out. They talk about even the color play that you see on a CD or a DVD um, is iridescent because of this diffraction grading principle that creates that iridescent color uh, or rainbow color to show up as you flex the um, DVD and CD from one direction to another. So that kind of helps us understand how that principle works. They've got a beautiful specimen of the um, boronite specimen, which also utilizes the same type of uh, iridescent color through this um, principle that we've been talking about on the surface um, Pretty cool, pretty cool. The diffraction grating surface, like little tiny ridges that reflect the lights in between each other and create different rainbow colors that we can see with the human eye. So that helps us understand the iridescent rainbow in the mineral world um, better. Now, um, let's see. We have... Uh, we are going for a world record here. We are going to do our last and final topic um, on Rich Hill, the history of Arizona's most amazing gold district. Um, this comes from a book by M. Catherine Crombie. Um, she is a PhD. It's also credited to Chris T. Glosson, a bachelor's in science, um, Danette S. Loretta, she's got a PhD, and Eric B. Melanchorn, he also has a PhD. Now, this book, Rich Hill, um, you can still buy this online, I believe. Uh, the latest topic uh, copy I have is the 2002. Um, the reason I bought this book is I was looking at purchasing some gold mines in the Rich Hill area of Arizona. This is very close to Wickenburg. Um, the book is tells quite a few stories about different gold mines and things like that. And if you like it, um, maybe each week or so I can do another um, another little um, thing on the Rich Hill area if you're into gold mining. Now, the introduction goes in to talk about Wickenburg, Arizona, about uh, this area. Rich Hill is about 14 miles north of Wickenburg, Arizona. This was once in an intense area of mining. Gold was discovered there in 1863 at the base of Granite Hill, and there was so much gold there that they later named the hill Rich Hill. Gold nuggets the size of potatoes uh, were an irresistible magnet that drew men of all races across the globe. Thousands of Americans and immigrant miners flocked to the rocky slopes to strike it big, and the area is rich in history, in romance, deception, and of course human struggle, and sometimes wonderful discoveries of gold. Now it goes on to talk about the properties of gold, and goes on to talk about the gold that is found in this area, and the nuggets that were found in this area were spectacular. Um, the alluvial gold of Rich Hill and the Weaver District is generally of high purity and ranges from dust to nuggets that are documented over several troy pounds. 
Um, they have a nugget table here that we will talk about at some point. But the average size of gold from the alluvial deposits of the Weaver Creek is described the size of flax seeds and nuggets are as large as Irish potatoes were found on top of Rich Hill, giving the famous potato patch its name. The patch is reported to produce up to 2,000 ounces from a single acre of ground. Abraham Peeps was rumored to have collected 300 ounces of loose nuggets in a single day. As recently as 1930, nuggets weighing in excess of 20 ounces are still being found. In the spring of 2000, a husband and wife team found a 25-ounce nugget with a metal detector. In 2002, a 10-ounce nugget was found. The total production of alluvial gold from the Weaver District is estimated to be over 100,000 ounces, almost 4 tons. But the total is likely much higher as many miners before and after history, were high graders and did not report their fines. So this book um, is written to tell you about the history, the discovery, the distribution of the gold, the recovery of the gold, the geological records, the travels of the Spanish explorers, historic archives, mining records, interviews with lifetime residents, newspaper stories, and personal experiences of this area. So what we can do, if you are interested in this, we can go through and talk about some of this history. Um, we can't read it pervadum, but we can highlight some of these items and give credit to these authors and encourage that you um, get a copy of this book if you like the Rich uh, Hill Gold District of Arizona in the United States of America. So guys, with that, I'm going to leave you with that. Um, Please stop by our website, RadicalRocks.com. Scroll down at the bottom. Get connected with us in one way or another. There's a huge choice. But definitely subscribe to our podcast. Like, share, comment. We love your comments. Um, get on the YouTube videos and uh, be a part of our community. Educate and be educated and entertained. All right? Remember, rock hounds don't die. They petrify.